From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. New data from the American Cancer Society indicate breast cancer is now the most common cause of cancer death for African-American women in Georgia, even though the breast cancer death's overall rate has been declining. Carol DeSantis is lead author of the Society's Biennial Breast Cancer Statistic Report out this month. She joins me in the studio. Welcome back. Hi, thanks for having me. Brian Rivers is director of the Cancer Health Equity Institute at Morehouse School of Medicine. His research interests include cancer health disparities. Welcome to you, Brian. Thank you. All right, Carol, going to start with you and some of the basics. How likely is the average woman to get breast cancer in her life? So the risk is uh, one in eight women will be diagnosed with breast cancer within their lifetime here in the U.S. How, how many total? So that's 13% of all women. Um, so in 2019, that translates to an estimated 268,000 women will be diagnosed this year in this country. Now, Brian, you study racial disparities in healthcare. So clarify for us, black and white women equally likely to be diagnosed with breast cancer but black women are more likely to die as a result? That's correct. Uh, any nuance behind those numbers, or is that as stark as it sounds? It, you know, it is. Um, uh, you know, we've been studying uh, these disparities for over a decade now, and we're starting to better understand the why. Why do we? Why are um, black women and white women equally um, able to be diagnosed um, with breast cancer? But then we see this disproportionate impact of breast cancer on black women, realizing that black women have a higher mortality in comparison to white women. So what's going on? What's the difference? And we're starting to disentangle in um, factors at the individual level. Um, we're looking at tumor characteristics that black women, of the uh, black women um, tumors. The specific tumors. The like specific tumor, them. right? You know, black women are more likely to be diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer. Um, we're looking um, at the development of new therapeutic targets, realizing that the current treatment options available for black women are not as effective as they are for white women. We're also looking at the role of obesity and other comorbidities that are germane to black women. Uh, and, and then lastly, we're looking at quality of care and the availability of this quality of care, realizing that African-American women are less likely to have that access to quality care um, across the cancer continuum from prevention to early detection to diagnosis as well as treatment. All right, I'm going to unpack those with you in just a second. But first, understanding from Carol, in fact, black women are 40% more likely to die from breast cancer than white women. Now, I understand the disparity had been widening, is now stable. Can you walk us through those patterns? Right. So since 1989, breast cancer death rates have been rapidly declining, and they declined faster in white women than in black women. So what we saw was that the racial disparity in breast cancer mortality rates was widening until 2011. That was when they were at their peak and death rates in black women were 44% higher than compared to white women. But in the, the most recent data show that overall um, the death rate is now 40% higher in black women compared to white women. Um, we also looked at this uh, by age and found that younger black women, the death rate was actually twice as high compared to younger white women. All right, let's look at some of those numbers because that's actually quite surprising. Does risk of breast cancer increase with age in overall population? That's correct, yes. But younger black women more likely to be or, or getting diagnosed more frequently? Yes, younger black women are diagnosed more frequently than younger white women. And this, this disparity in death, death rates is 
is magnified in the women under age 50. So, Brian, Georgia has the third worst uninsured rate in the country. You talked about access. How does ability to afford care figure into the risks and outcomes? Uh, It's a really important um, variable, and we're starting to better understand what we call social determinants of health. Um, And these are factors associated with poverty, associated with culture, as well as social um, injustice. So what I mentioned before were more as what we consider individual factors that relates to this disparate outcome among um, African-American women in the context of uh, breast cancer. But now we're starting to sort of disentangle some of these complex variables at the social level, realizing that health insurance, which could be categorized under the construct of poverty, um, really impacts one's ability to obtain adequate health service, as well as utilize preventive services, including screening and other um, 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 care services Mm -hmm. uh, related to prevention. And and so we see a disparity, a disparity in terms of the utilization patterns. Um, Those who are um, more uh, publicly insured, um, such as through Medicaid or Medicare, are less likely to uh, participate um, in preventive care services, and they're more likely to delay um, an abnormal screening result, mm-hmm. the, the follow-up, if you will. You know, um, the, and this is a trend that we've seen consistently over the past 20 years as it relates to black women and breast cancer. Um, in um, the early, um, pro- about probably two decades ago, Harold Freeman, um, a well-known breast cancer surgeon out of Harlem, New York, um, saw this phenomenon taking place, realizing that, you know, black women would come in, receive a diagnosis of breast cancer, but then there was this delay in terms of them showing up for their first course of treatment. So he instituted this model called patient navigation, mm-hmm. which was purpose to resolve um, that time gap that um, they were experiencing or uh, witnessing among black women in terms of the time they were diagnosed to the time that they actually showed up for their primary course of treatment. He actually was able to shrink that time. You know, and, and so again, the question begs, well, why is there a delay? Is it because of you know, their, um, you know, the, the, the site of where care is being received? Um, is it uh, related to the type of health insurance they have? Or is it something more germane such as fear or mistrust of the health care system? Mm-hmm. So these are all different elements that we're starting to better understand. And, you know, how do they um, you know, factor the disparity that we see as it relates to black women and breast cancer? I'm speaking with the, of the American Cancer Society principal scientist, Carol DeSantis, who found alarming disparities between black and white women who die of breast cancer, while such deaths overall are declining. But we just heard from Brian Rivers, director of the Cancer Health Equity Institute at Morehouse University School of Medicine. And as we're hearing, his research interests include cancer health disparities. Well, this is something that we've covered a lot on the show, you know, conversations about maternal mortality, Georgia, of course, being the worst state, stats much worse for black women. Um, the role that subtle racism appears to play. Now, we've heard both anecdotes from people and research that says sometimes it is harder for black women to convince doctors that they need care. You're talking about the response of the women in themselves, you know, whether they go back for care. So how does how does that kind of social um, subtle racism or, let's say, unconscious bias play into that? Sure. And, and it's a significant factor as well. And, and so then we get into the health system um, factors, um, factors at the systems level or at the provider level in terms of the site of care 
um, where black women are um, going for breast cancer treatment. And oftentimes they're um, low resourced. Um, they're not your NCI, um, National Cancer Institute designated cancer centers um, that are very robust and comprehensive um, in, in service um, services that they deliver. Um, but but we're seeing that, you know, the site of care matters and that there's differential outcomes as it relates to where one goes for treatment for cancer. And this is seen across uh, many um, cancer types. And breast cancer is a um, classic example as well. Um, and so it is an unconscious bias because these are environments in which, you know, the standard of care um, is, is being practiced, um, but, but, but it may not be as effective uh, for this population. So here's the role of culture. Here's the role of health literacy. Here's the role of patient-provider communication, effective patient-provider communication. So providers having the knowledge of how to best treat a young patient with triple negative breast cancer, you know, we assume that that knowledge base is there. But oftentimes it's missing. Mm -hmm. and, and oftentimes, in, especially in rural Georgia, people are struggling to access care. You know, it, hospitals it, it, are closed, exactly. physicians trying to serve large areas, not even able to find a doctor. Um, Carol, I'm wondering here, though, there's another what's, what's popping up in your research. Lung cancer, still the number one overall cancer killer nationwide. Now, we're talking about dire numbers for breast cancer, but what makes that disease in particular so difficult to beat? Well, lung cancer is a highly fatal cancer, but um, I mean, we're seeing declining rates in lung cancer because um, of declining smoking prevalence. So um, we are seeing progress being made in that cancer. And we've been talking about health issues that affect women, breast cancer, maternal mortality. Uh, racial disparity also exists when it comes to black men and prostate cancer. Brian, what does that gap look like? Yeah, so the gap, we've been studying this gap for over 20 years now, and it's persistent. Black men are more likely to be diagnosed with prostate cancer as well as die from prostate cancer um, in comparison to other racial and ethnic groups. And we see a lot of parallels in terms of those contributing factors at the individual level, but then also at the community level and um, the provider level or the systems level. And, and so we see this interaction, and then we're trying to better understand the why. We know that there's limitations in the current screening modalities, whether it's the prostate-specific antigen test, the PSA, or the digital rectal exam, the DRE. We know that there's limitations. Um, so why we have the recommendation, all men should engage in informed decision-making. But again, the data that were, um, what was used to support this particular guideline, um, you know, should be examined further because the studies that produced these guidelines lacked an adequate representation of high-risk individuals. And what do I mean by high-risk? Those individuals that are at increased risk for obtaining this disease. So we know that there's three risk factors for prostate cancer. Age, uh, being African-American or black, and then those with a family history. And, and so there was not an adequate representation in those screening trials, the prostate screening trials, the PLCO, and there was another trial conducted in Europe that adequately rep um, represented high-risk groups or even over-represented these high-risk groups. And so we come out with these limitations or these guidelines that we attempt to apply, you know, sort of to all individuals. You know, realizing that all individuals are not involved in a research study to really help inform some of the nuances that should be teased out in the guideline. So as a black man, what is my guideline for prostate cancer screening? Should I start screening at the age of 50, realizing that I'm that I'm at increased risk or should I start much earlier? And then do I have the bandwidth? Do I have the competency or the capacity to engage in a healthy shared decision uh, making process with my healthcare provider, and then is my healthcare provider aware of my increased risk 
and this disparity that exists among African-Americans? And is there a need for early intervention and greater surveillance as a result of my risk? And so these are, you know, that's just one example. Another example is just what happens at the time you hear the words, you have cancer. Mm -hmm. So especially with localized prostate cancer, um, you know, there's so many different pathways. You know, there has not been a clinical trial that has really compared these different treatments head on. Uh, Radical prostatectomy or surgical intervention versus radiation therapy, whether it's brachytherapy or external beam radiation therapy. And so men are faced with a plethora of options in terms of, okay, what's best for me or which, which pathway should I pursue? And so, you know, there's a lot of stress. There's a lot of anxiety around the decision-making process. And even more so, there's a lot of decisional regret as a result of the treatment that one selected because of the side effects that they're encountering, whether it's impotence, whether it's incontinence, whether it's cognitive depletion, the list goes on. So quality of life matters as well, not just quantity of life. I'm going to stop you right there, if, I, if you don't mind, because I want to ask Carol, you know, obviously you are somebody who is the data collector, and you're looking at, are, are, do you think that you have methodology for properly weighing these kind of social, economic, racial factors, these sort of biases, when you're looking at this overall picture and just trying to get the number. Yeah, it's definitely a limitation um, for our screening guidelines. Like you said, um, they are largely based on studies that predominantly involve white women. So that's why it is important um, to have those discussions with your physician for a personalized recommendation. Um, The ACS screening guidelines for breast cancer are that women should begin screening at age 45 with annual screening. At age 55, they could then switch over to biennial screening. But really, the women starting at age 40, 40, women should have a conversation with their doctor about their own risk factors to decide if age 40 is the right time to begin screening. Carol DeSantis of the American Cancer Society, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. Also, Brian Rivers, Director of the Cancer Health Equity Institute at Morehouse School of Medicine. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. Now, you can join the conversation going on in our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought. We've got some comments on our interview yesterday with Pat Mitchell, first female president of PBS. You can follow them there. We'll get to them later on in the show. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. We've got a conversation about creating your dreams from a very young age and a terrific local nonprofit. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is On Second Thought from GPB. Create Your Dreams, or CYD, is an after-school program that provides long-term youth development dedicated to helping students in underserved communities of Atlanta's west side neighborhoods. And that means resources, opportunities, and perhaps most importantly, relationships that help equip these young Atlantans to grow and succeed. And this Friday, CYD is celebrating its 25th anniversary. Kim Dennis is executive director of Create Your Dreams, joining me in the studio Kim, great to have you with us. Thank you for having us. Also joined by Tykeria Tysinger. She is one of the students who's gone through the Create Your Dreams program. Tykeria, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. All right, Kim, I'm going to start with you. Create Your Dreams, basically an after-school program, but a lot more than that. And you describe it as extreme mentoring. What does that mean exactly? Well, it means that if our mission is to wrap around the kids so that they can reach their potential, we need to provide whatever resources and opportunities that they need so that they can do exactly what we say we're going to help them do, which is create their dreams. All right. So when do you begin this process with kids? Um, We begin when the children are in second grade, and we follow them elementary, middle, high school. And when they graduate from high school, we help pay for their college. That is a long-term commitment. Why do you start in second grade? 
We start in second grade because that's really the age at which they're open enough to what we have to offer, and they're still, they're old enough to sit still and to take it all in. So it's kind of a nice merge of those two things. And it's also nice to start with them that age because when they become adolescent and not so fun to work with, staff at our team can remember about how cute they were and um, <laughs> why. still like to talk to them? Yeah, and we still like them. So, And this is, you begin in the second grade uh, with students from the William W. Boyd Elementary School that's near the Westside Reservoir Park. Why that area in particular? It's a low-income community, and it has a lot of people who have been there for generations living in poverty. So our goal is to take families who have lived there for multiple generations and provide the support they need so they can break the cycle. Tegheria, did you start in second grade? I actually started in third grade. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you were, you still were cute, and and they you you still had formed these relationships with the people at CYD. Yes, I did, it, and it's been an ongoing journey. Like they um, have been in my life since the third grade, and it has never stopped. That's a big commitment. Have you ever thought like oh, I've had enough of this? No, I haven't. It's actually like we've created a family with Create Your Dreams, so it's easy for me to go back and to give my time back and energy to the youth that are in the program now. So like I said, it's for everything, locked in forever. All right. So you start with a new class of 12 students each year. How does a student become enrolled with Create Your Dreams? We work with William Boyd Elementary for them to help us identify families that would be a good match for us long term, because we really want to work with families who have been there for generations and not the family that just moved in. Oh, that's interesting. So it's not the newcomer to Atlanta, the transplant necessarily, but somebody who's got some roots in the neighborhood? Yes, and typically the children that are overlooked. I see. So what what kind of criteria are you looking for in the kids? Well, we're really trying to... Um, or what makes a fit? Well, what makes a fit is that, that it's we're creating a group, like a whole group of children that mm-hmm. will go through the program together. So it's not necessarily like one child is the fit, but they need to be able to be part of that group. Uh-huh. So and 12 students, so that any It's breakdown, half boy, half, half girl. Boy. Ah, that's interesting, too. So what kind of scenarios might these kids be, these students rather, be coming from? The average income for one of our families is $15,000, and that is the same as the community, the ones that have resided there for mm-hmm. generations, um, single-parent household, um Working families. Then kids who, you said working families, you work a great deal with the families. And I think there are, you know, let's say, acknowledge a lot of stereotypes about people who are low income and care of children. What have you found that counters those kind of images? Okay, I love our parents and our moms and our dads are our greatest asset and our number one partner. So in order to get our children to the program, we have a summer camp all summer that's academic for six weeks, and it goes from, we have to pick up kids at eight in the morning. If we don't have parents on board to support us, we would not be able to provide that service of all-day academics all summer if we didn't have them behind us. And sometimes getting kids to college is complicated, so we really need parents involved. But no, we we love our parents, and we don't have any problems with our parents. So the... Neighborhoods all over Atlanta seeing sweeping demographic, socioeconomic shifts due to gentrification. You stay with people who have roots in a certain neighborhood. The common thing among CYD students, most likely to be coming from generational poverty. So that's a huge 
undertaking. How does CYD try to change that course of multi-generational poverty? Well, the children have to change the course. The children have to make different choices um, and choose to stay in school and to learn as much as they can. And we broaden their horizons and offer them opportunities that they might not otherwise know about so that they can make different choices and choose a different life, one that they've p picked for themselves, not one that was just given to them. Tykeria, you came up in the program. What do you remember doing as part of Create Your Dreams, this idea of broadening your worldview? Did you see that happening? Yes, I did. Um, I actually feel like I'm a very balanced person. Like, um, growing up in the neighborhood that I grew up in, which was called Etheridge, and which is, like, where most of the kids reside now, um, it's a not-so-nurturing environment. And so, whereas um, in that particular neighborhood, we have to create our own fund, CYD kind of expanded my horizon. So, um, I was going water rafting, um, horseback riding, rock climbing, doing all of these things that somebody that would come from that neighborhood wouldn't get a chance to do. So mm -hmm. that's how they broadened my horizon. So, of course, you're still living in that neighborhood. You're one of these 12 kids who are working in this program. What did it feel like to be seeing all these big things and then coming back to the neighborhood where people didn't have those kind of opportunities? Um, it gave me a better understanding of the world. Like, I feel like Kim introduced me to another side and it made me want to do more. So I knew that there was more to life than what we or that some people were settling for. And so it kind of gave me a sense of the world and to just, you know, do great things. I want to do great things. How did you come up with creating your own dream and decide what you wanted to do? Um, well, Kim, actually, you know, I feel like CYD is like a path to self-discovery because you do get introduced to so much at such an early age. And so um, I feel like my me creating my dreams, kind, well, CYD kind of just, you know, helped me to want to do better in life. And so um, now I'm... You know, I have my a manifestation journal, all the things that I want to accomplish, and I feel like CYD has helped me accomplish some of those goals. Mm -hmm. And so... And keep that vision ahead yeah, of so you. Yes, and keep the vision ahead of me. Yeah. Well, helping a seven-year-old looks very different from helping a 17-year-old. Kim, how, do, how does CYD grow with its students? We grow just as a parent would grow with their children. So we meet the demand at which the, the children bring things to us. So it's just a evolution. It's slow. You know, it's not like overnight we have to one, help one child do a math problem. The next night we're helping him get into college. <laughs> it's a very slow, it's a marathon, each child. I mean, it's long term. And, and it, how many how many end. kids in the program total now? We serve um, around 100 families, and we have 50 in our main core program. Okay, so you keep saying families instead of kids. I keep saying kids, you keep saying families. So what's the distinction there? Um, I think that... We need to work with the whole, the family as a whole and not just think. When we started 25 years ago, the focus was just on the child, and we did not involve parents. Now we know the importance and the value of families and of parents and and really trying to support the family as a whole and not just a child. Mm -hmm. And it's not, of course, just tutoring and academics. Um, Taikiria talked about some of the ways that her vision of the world was broadened for students. What, what, how do you figure out what are the best things for kids to do and what they need? We listen. Hmm. We listen to the kids to figure out what they're interested in and go from there. 
So we are talking with Kim Dennis. She is the executive director of CYD. That's Create Your Dreams, celebrating 25 years this week. Tykeria Tysinger is also with us. She's an Atlanta local and a graduate of the Create Your Dreams program. Again, it's a local nonprofit dedicated to youth development in Atlanta's west side. So Tykeria, you've seen this extreme mentoring in action. Even live with Kim for a little while mm-hmm. during your senior year in high school. How did you end up moving in? Um, so I was living in a not so nurturing environment, and um, Kim just kind of came in and helped me to elevate to the next level. And so um, I was, you know, like I said, I was living in a not so nurturing environment, and I called Kim, and she was there. And I think that's what matters the most: somebody just being in your life, being a consistent mentor and and not leaving you when you need help the most. I feel like I was at my most vulnerable moment and she just came in and kind of, you know, helped me on my journey. And you went on, you ended up going to Louisiana State University, LSU, which wasn't a fit. And you came back to Atlanta. Did you come back to CYD when you returned? I did. I actually did. So, like I said, the program is ongoing. And so when I went to LSU, um, things just kind of went down here from there. Like my transition into college was a was heart wrenching. And so Kim, I called Kim and I didn't want to tell her that I was, you know, I was flunking out of school. And she just kind of gave me this whole, the whole rundown on how I could, you know, better myself and get my grades up and transfer to do what I needed to do. She's talking about, you're all talking about building community and Mm -hmm. a sense of safety. Did you feel just too far from home at LSU, too far away from the people who you understood? That could, yes, I, I actually did. Like, I, I feel like I needed that, that family there because I went there by myself. I didn't, I didn't have any friends to go with. So I went there by myself and I was longing for the family ties that I once had when I was in Atlanta. So that played a major factor in my transition to LSU. And you went on to Georgia State yes, University. I went just to graduated? Mm-hmm. Well, I graduated, yes, 2016. Okay, so congratulations for that. You're the Thank first you. in your family to have graduated from college. I am. How does that feel for you? Um, It's amazing. Like I say, um, CYD focuses on build, um, breaking generational cycles, and I feel like I'm doing that with the journey that I'm on right now. You're going forward to something else. Yes, I am. Um, Is there graduation from the program, Kim? Yes, we have a graduation when they finish high school. <laughs> but clearly, sometimes they, they come back around. Um, well, we say we support the children until they start supporting us. So, so when they start donating of their time or money, then they they no longer are on our payroll, so to speak. Tigeria, you're now on the board for CYD. What do you hope kids are getting out of the program? I hope that kids get the same experience that I got. So basically just, you know, broadening, broadening their horizon and... Um, Letting them know that you can do anything that you want to do. The world is, we're living in a vast universe, and so possibilities are are endless. So you can do whatever you put your mind to. So now you're in the position of mentoring other kids. Yes, I am. How do you figure out what they need? You know, how do you read that? And what are some of the challenges of that for you? Um, Like Kim said, just listening. And a challenge would be like, you know, them not understanding what they're doing at such a young age and so um there are certain things that they would like to do and at times you know like you don't want to say i want i know what's best for you because you don't know like their situation at home but it's like i want to guide you to be the person that you want to be so a challenge would be just like them not understanding the Kim CYD started in 1994. Since then, you've gathered some pretty impressive numbers. 100% of CYD students graduated from high school. That's 
pretty stunning for a program. It's it's pretty uh, it's a wonderful thing to be able to tell a new parent who's enrolling their child that if they keep their child here and in the program, I guarantee if they finish our program, they will graduate from high school because mm-hmm. we have um, you know we have a track record. And in the community, when we started Create Your Dreams, it was only 40%. So the goal originally was just to get kids to graduate from high school. Right. On to 96% gone on to some kind of post-secondary degree, 88% earned their degree, currently enrolled. 40% went on to get master's degrees, like Tykeria, many of them first-generation students. With the success of a program like that, has there been any consideration of expanding it, you know, maybe beyond Boyd Elementary? Um, that conversation is always ongoing, um, but no, nothing in the works. But it is a, it's a nice unit. We work really well together. Um, it's, it's, it works. And you're hosting an event on Friday at the King Plow Art Center to celebrate CYD's 25th year. The theme is homecoming. What does that theme mean? Well, we're honoring our first group of children who graduated from the program and their lives and what they're doing now. So we have 10 kids that we're honoring, <clears throat> and we're going to have it at the King Plow Art Center, which is in the same room that we used to have all of our holiday parties, our Thanksgiving gatherings, all of our celebrations. So it's a homecoming. It is definitely a homecoming. Takiri, you majored in journalism, mm-hmm. minor in African-American <clears throat> studies. So what's next for you? What's your dream job? My dream job would to be an actress. Um, I feel like I've been limiting myself in so many ways, but now I'm walking in my power. So my dream job is to work for like Tyler Perry or something. So if you're listening, if you're listening, Tyler, Tyler listen, hit your girl up because I am ready. Okay, I am more than ready. <laughs> so looking back on this and looking at the work that you're doing now with other kids, what do you think was the most impactful part of Create Your Dreams for you in your life? The most impactful would be um, the experiences. So I feel like. I experienced so many different things with Create Your Dreams that I would have normally gotten on a regular. Um, They've just, you know, allowed me to just be who I am. And when I look back on my life, it seems like everything was just meant to be like it's the journey. It it makes sense now. Life makes sense for me. And so I remember like um, doing just like Kwanzaa celebrations with CYD. And them allowing me to just be who I am and learn myself, learn my history. And then I go to LSU and Georgia State and I made minor in African-American studies. And um, Kim, you know, is very spiritual. And so she's kind of guiding me on my journey to just just being my best self. Kim, for you, 25 years in, what do you what's your dream for the program? Boy, that's a loaded question. I think my dream for the program is for kids to stay on track and to graduate from high school and to attend college and to for them to grow and create their dreams. Kim Dennis, congratulations on 25 years. Thank you. She's CYD's executive director. Tykeria Tysinger is an Atlanta local and graduate of the Create Your Dreams program. Again, a nonprofit dedicated to youth development and Atlanta's west side, celebrating 25 years. And while they're celebrating, it's taking place at the King Plow Arts Center's main gallery, 7 to 10 on Friday. The theme is homecoming because CYD is honoring its first class of students. In honor of those students, we're going to leave you with the song Now or Never by Kendrick Lamar and Mary J. Blige. So did you grow up with a mentor, someone you admired? Tell, them about, tell us about him or her on our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought. We'll be back with Record Heat, where it's going, where it's been. Stay with us. 
We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. We have covered on this program before how farmers across Georgia have been impacted by a multitude of events in the last couple of years. Hurricanes, certainly, stalled aid, trade policy, and on top of that, drought. In September, the southeast saw record heat with little to no rain. Now there is lots of rain in the forecast for the coming weekend. And we decided to check in with onion farmer Aries Haygood of A&M Farms in Lyons, Georgia. Aries, so nice to speak with you. Well, thank you. It's nice to speak with you too. How are things looking on your farm right now? Uh, Right now, um, things look fine. They're dry and it's hot. Um, It's not typical for this time of the year to be this this dry or this hot. But, uh, you know, during this time of the year, we're, we're sowing our seed for our onions. You know, we, we do overhead irrigation on those onions anyway. So we, um, you know, we may not prefer it to be this dry, but we can manage it. Um, we can manage the moisture levels with our irrigation right now. So you're not going to suffer for, your, your, your crops won't suffer because of this drought? As of right now, I'd say no. Yeah, for right now, our onion crop uh, is going to be fine. Now, of course, we've got some row crops that are suffering. Um, needed some moisture that probably didn't get adequate amounts. Like what, like what row crops? Uh, you know, your peanuts, your soybeans, um, your cotton. I mean, many, um, different row crops that are, that are basically getting ready to come off, uh, right now. Some of us have gone almost a whole month without any rain. Mm -hmm. So you just imagine a, a crop not growing with any rain, you know, there, there's going to be, uh, uh, size issues and, and um, moisture problems within that crop that, you know, we really don't know how severe it is yet. So so you're, so you as a farmer, do you just kind of wait these kind of things out? Do you fret? How, how do you handle the stress of it? <laughs> you know, we, uh, it's out of our control. I mean, it's not in our hands. Um, we just, uh, we wake up every day and, and we thank the good Lord for being here, you know, and so you know, when it gets dry like this, of course, we talk about it. We, uh, we'd love to, to change it. We'd love to do something different. A lot of us, we irrigate. We may irrigate extra. But um, at the end of the day, you know, all we can do is just uh, take what's given to us and just um, try to make the best out of it. So tell me a little bit about, like, how onion farming has changed. What, some of the innovations, like, are there different approaches that you use that, maybe somebody of another generation might think, oh, well, this is just the way we do it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, as time has changed, we've uh, we've seen uh, um, uh, different varieties come on. Um, I, I sit here and I think back to when I started 13 years ago. Some of the varieties we grew 13 years ago, there's not one of them on our farm now. Hmm. <laughs> so it just shows you how much they change. And so with each variety that we change, there's a different growing practice that you have to use. There's different ways that you tend to that variety, from fertilization to irrigation management to the time that you plant it, the time that you harvest it. So, you know, we're always adapting and trying to change. Uh, input costs have gone up so much. Um, just our, our cost to produce the, the crops that we produce now, um, it's, it's nerve-wracking. It's challenging. Um, so we try to be very careful about changing or, or doing something completely out of the ordinary um, just because you know we just can't afford to to really mess up you've gotten into organic farming in the past couple of years how about that transition obviously organic vegetables sell for more money but they probably cost a lot more to maintain as well yeah you know that that is that's the challenge uh, especially in in south georgia uh one of the unique things that makes our onions uh so sweet is is the rain 
But the other challenge that it does for us from a weed control, it, it breaks any type of weed barrier that there is. So therefore, you've always got, especially in organic farming, mm -hmm. you tend to always have some sort of weed growing every day. And mm -hmm, because you you can't use the inorganic weed killer. That's correct. Yeah. I mean, there's just no there's no weed killers out there that are that are organic uh, based weed killers. So the only way to do it is to pull the weeds by hand. Right. So, uh, you know, that's that's become a challenge. Well, let me talk a little bit about the economics here. Have you been affected like many Georgia farmers have by the trade war in, with China? From the row crop, meaning the cotton, peanuts, soybeans, corn. All of us farmers have been affected by that. Uh, I don't know many farmers that haven't. Everybody's trying to trying to just wade this wade this thing out. Uh, there's some support there to try to help, but but you know we've been affected. You mean you've lost your markets? I mean people aren't buying. Is that what it is? Well, yeah. I mean, I guess it's I guess it's the markets. You know, we you know let's face it. I mean, we're in America. We can produce a lot of what we do, and then you take away a market like China course it's going to have an initial effect on us mm -hmm. um but we just got to we're trying to sift through that and just try to wade through it and make some adjustments and just hopefully buy the right amount of time to uh to get back on our feet most of us farmers are trying to be diversified so uh what may affect me on uh, soybeans may help me on the onion side of things so it's just a matter of just trying to sift out and see what what the what the final outcome is so how about your staffing? What does your labor look like now? I know there are many farmers who say that they can't get people or there are challenges to draw people to work at their farms. You know, that agriculture work is a challenging industry to be in. Um, harvesting watermelons, bell peppers, cucumbers, squash, you know, all the specialty crops that we can produce in Georgia, it's a challenge to, uh, to, to get out there every day and get, them, and get them harvested. Trust me, I mean, hey, it's a challenge for me to do it. You know, let's just, let's look at right now. Um, we go and we plant onions. We're sowing our seed today as we speak. We're going to put all of our livelihood into that onion, and we're going to throw everything we can at it to make it the best onion we can. Well, then in April, we've got to get that onion out of the ground. In Georgia, we've got rain. Usually during that time of the year, it rains once a week. So you've always got a rain cloud coming. And some of the challenges we've seen is just uh, getting a workforce that shows up every day that's reliable and dependable for us to get that onion out of that field before that next rain. And so, you know, we've we've had to start leaning on um, the H-2A program a lot. That, that's, allows, that's the guest worker program, basically, for migrant That's the guest worker program, yes, ma'am. Mm -hmm. You know, that to help us um, offset that for our fields um, because we, we it's just a challenge. I mean, we've got to get that onion out of that field. Um, and not to mention, I mean, with the economy doing better, we've seen it here. I mean, there's been uh, jobs that are, that are, you know, people that may be pulled away from what they're doing here to go somewhere else because, you know, they can make two or three more dollars an hour maybe doing something somewhere else. Mm -hmm. ag, ag on its own has always had a challenge with labor. I mean, we've always faced a labor shortage because you can never have enough people to get your crop out of the field before, you, before the crop starts to go bad. Do you think it's harder to get workers now than it used to be with the additional red tape with the H-2A and obviously, yeah. you know, the crackdown on immigration? You know, it it, it is. It's a, it's a little bit more challenging for sure. I mean, we, uh, we've been doing the H-2A program, oh man, I think for 10 years now. And uh, each year it seems like it gets a little harder. It seems like there's some sort of document 
that's sitting on the desk somewhere in someone's office that just has to be stamped and signed that's never stamped or signed when we need our people here. And uh, we're having to try to call and find out what's going on and follow up and follow up. Next thing you know, you know, your, your crew may be three or four days behind. Well, that's three or four days of good weather that you don't get back. And, uh, you know, and then we're also responsible. Uh, we're responsible as part of our obligation to make sure that, that three quarters of their contract is, uh, is paid for. Mm. So when you lose three to four days of good harvest weather, um, it, it, <laughs> it puts your back against the wall to make sure that everything works out right. Aries Haygood of A&M Farms in Lyons, Georgia. Yes, ma'am. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, too. I appreciate your time. So we just heard from one farmer waiting out the drought in Lyons, Georgia. The latest drought monitor report says dry conditions there are moderate, better off than other parts of the state. Areas north and south of Atlanta in central Georgia and near the South Carolina border have been in extreme doubt the point at which dry conditions really start to hurt agriculture. Weather's been hot as well as dry. An October heat wave has set multiple new records across the state. Well, on the line to tell us more is Weather Channel meteorologist Greg Postel. Hello, Greg. Hi, good morning. How are you? All right, thank you. But better than in in some places in Georgia, the next drought monitor report comes out tomorrow. Parts of Georgia have been getting rain in recent days. Expect the new report to show much improvement overall? Well, as you were mentioning, the worst uh, areas affected by drought are sort of near Atlanta, maybe just south, and then northward into North Georgia and western South Carolina. I'm not sure there's going to be much relief or much change in the new drought monitor that comes out tomorrow on a weekly basis. Those come out We just didn't get much rain in North Georgia and Western South Carolina in the last couple of days. Central Georgia and Southern Georgia did pretty good. They got a couple of inches, so there will be some relief there. But uh, in the northern part of the state, not so much. So even when there is a good soaking after a drought, does it make much difference? Or is it about the time that crops are actually in the ground and other life forms? Well, you don't want it all at once because then it's going to go right into runoff and not really get absorbed by the soil. So you really want it kind of spread out over, you know, a period of time. So, yes, it will help a couple of inches here and there, no doubt about that. Um, but we need a pattern change. We need things to change, not just on a sort of on a day-to-day basis, but we need something to get routine rains back into the southeast, you know, every several days or once a week or something like that. And we may be headed toward that in the next, say, you know, one to two weeks to close out October. Uh, we can hope for that because there are some signs, uh, wetter conditions, not just on a daily basis, but sort of a pattern, a wetter pattern is coming our way. Well, let's look at those patterns. Record-setting heat in the U.S. this October. Summer, a real scorcher, too. July, July was the hottest month on record in the history of the planet. Certainly toasty here. So what do those patterns over the past few months mean? Well, they've kept the rain away. The fact that we've had what's called a ridge aloft in the jet stream, in other words, a big bubble of hot air over essentially the southeastern U.S., has been in place more or less for a long time. We're going back months, maybe even more than a year. Now, it hasn't been there every day, but it's been kind of the dominant mode that's shown up more often than not. And when you have those big bubbles of of warm air that really show up in the summertime, they're not going to allow rain to come in to play very often. They keep the fronts away, and they oftentimes keep tropical systems away, which, believe it or not, in the summertime in Georgia, especially late summer, August, September, you know, while there are a lot of bad things that come with a landfalling hurricane, 
they actually can provide beneficial rain to places in the southern part of the state. Let's talk about the difference between a moderate and extreme drought, which are the terms that are used. Latter means lost hay and grazing areas, other problems for agriculture. Leaves have been changing color earlier. So what are some of these signs of extreme drought here in Georgia? Well, not much color change that you'd expect on the foliage. Um, there are levels of drought. Uh, we're in what's called D3 here in, in and around the Atlanta area and in North Georgia. That is three essentially on a scale of zero to four. So there's one more level that we could get to, which is called exceptional drought, which we're not in and I don't think we'll be in um, anytime soon. But, yeah, we've seen noticeable lag in the uh, tree and the foliage changes uh, with a lack of rainfall. We've got cracking ground in some places, getting reports of river and livestock ponds running dry, wells even drying up. Well, this dry heat also means that outdoor burns can be very dangerous. And folks may remember 2016 when forest fires in North Georgia continued into the fall. Smoke so fierce, people in Atlanta saw it in the air for days. Are we at any risk of that level of fire this year? Certainly more than average, yeah, for sure. With the dry ground and the dry conditions, um, that is definitely more of a, a problem potentially than where we at normal condition. Um, but I think, you know, the rain over the next couple of days will help. And going forward, as I said, in the next one to two weeks, I think uh, good news for many of us, including the farmers and those obviously not wanting any uh, damage from fire. That's, that's going to be a good sign, I think, in the next uh, closing out October, as I said, with wetter weather coming in. Greg, you, you say the heat wave that's had our state locked in high drought, dry weather, that bubble is finally relenting. Now, how does that work in terms of weather fronts on the move? Mm. That's a good question, because oftentimes uh, when those systems are locked in, like those warm patterns aloft, those ridges in the jet stream, they deflect weather systems away. And it's precisely this problem that you get because the hot air uh, doesn't allow the rain. And then without the rain, the the ground dries up and then heats up even more. And so it feeds back on the pattern already in place. So it's a positive feedback loop where the warm and the hot conditions dry out the ground, make it even warmer and hotter which that pattern tends to deflect the rain away. So, it, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you need a dramatic shift almost globally to change things. And we are starting to see that uh, dry, hot pattern break down. In fact, I think the second half of October is going to be relatively cool um, compared to average. And that is quite a departure from what we saw in the first week or two of the month where we were seeing all-time October records broken excessively. Now, it, this is remarkable because we were getting – all-time monthly records broken, which is a rare feat on its own, but they were broken on consecutive days in many locations in Georgia, including Atlanta, including Macon, lots of other places as well. What is this weather pattern made for hurricane season, which runs through November 30th, so not over yet? What are the odds that Georgia's going to see another hurricane this year? Uh, Odds are low, uh, but not zero. In fact, we're watching right now an area in the southwestern Gulf of Mexico, a gathering area of of thunderstorms that may acquire some kind of tropical characteristics, probably not going to become a hurricane, but it may carry that disturbance right now in the southern Gulf of Mexico may actually and probably will get into Georgia, believe it or not, right, this weekend. Uh, which could bring at least several inches of rain to the central and southern part of the state. So 
Well, you know, it's not likely it'll be a hurricane. And overall, you're exactly right. The season is winding down. This is the time of year precisely when we can get those kinds of systems that are relatively moist, maybe not hurricanes, but sort of tropical things coming into our part of the world. And and we desperately need that because it's been so rough for us uh, drought-wise. All right. So beyond the rain predictions, what's coming for winter? Anything that you can look at in terms of patterns? (laughs) We want to know it all. uh, yeah, right. Well, you know, the, um, the, most of the guidance that I've seen, the models that are run sort of on a seasonal basis, pretty much unanimously suggest that it'll be warmer than average and drier than average. But, um, that, you know, those are sort of slight differences from what we typically get. So there's not a, you know, guarantee one way or the other, but the trend is sort of leaning toward warmer than average. Meteorologist Greg Postel from the Weather Channel, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you very much. Join the conversation on our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought. How's the heat been affecting you? Do you remember the 2016 forest fires in Georgia? We also got some conversation going on yesterday's interview with Pat Mitchell. Prompted some of you to comment. Malvin said, I thought it was a good interview. It was interesting what she said about the emphasis that was put on appearance. Alan liked Pat's observation that women must change the nature of power rather than power changing the nature of women. Well, we would welcome your comments as well. It's Facebook. It's our group. It's GBB Radio's On Second Thought. Way in there. On Second Thought, produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, Jake Troyer, Jesse Neiswanger as our engineer, Amy Kiley, a senior producer, executive producer, Mary Lynn Ryan. I'm Virginia Prescott. Till tomorrow. <laughs>